Hello, this is Father Hightower, and welcome to Vox SFX, the voice of St. Francis Xavier Parish in Missoula, Montana, and sponsored in part by the Foundation for the Diocese of Helena. We are so pleased that you have joined us. Your participation enriches our community. We hope that our show serves as a point of light, helping to deepen our understanding and experience of the Catholic faith and history. Join us as we seek through prayer, study, interviews, and discussion the roots of our ancient mysteries. Welcome once again. Uh, you may have noticed from the episode title, Bring Me the Black Robes, that that's kind of an interesting thing to say. And the vast majority of people will not necessarily know what we're talking about. And that's what we're here to kind of enlighten, which is the segue that we're going to be taking into talking about the history of the Catholic Church, particularly in this area. And here to help us understand this topic are Father Craig Hightower and Patricia Lawrence, our Director of Communications. Uh, welcome, y'all. Thank you. It's nice Thank to be you. here. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this. So let's talk about that phrase real quick. Bring me the black robes. Where does that come from? Well, there's, uh, there's two, two parts of this. One is uh, about 300 years ago, one of the uh, Salish medicine men uh, by the name of Shining Shirt had a vision of men wearing black robes coming and helping his people. And so that was part of the cultural lore of the Salish people, both the Pondere and the Bitterroot. Uh, and the Nez Pierce. And then the Iroquois Indians from upstate New York, who worked as porters for the Hudson Bay Company and the Inland Fur Company, brought Christianity to the Salish people here in what's now Montana, Idaho. And when they did that, they told them about the black robes because the, the Jesuits were the ones who had been with the Iroquois Indians in upstate New York. They actually sent four delegations to St. Louis, the gateway of the West, uh, they sent four delegations to get the black robes, the Jesuits, to come out here. Uh, the first one was in 1831, and then 1835, 1837, and then 1839. And in 1839, uh, two Salish individuals actually met Father Pierre de Smet in Council Bluffs, Iowa, where he was working with another Native American group. They asked him to come out here. He went back to St. Louis to get permission, and Pierre de Smet with five other Jesuits came out in 1841. And his name features heavily on a lot of the landmarks and, and towns and roads around here. Like growing up, I Desmet was something that I heard all the time. So these guys obviously had a, a big impact on this area. They did, yeah. So he founded uh, actually the very first, the very first white settlement. You know, even though it was geared towards the Native Americans, the Bitterroot Salish, and the Nez Pierce allies, Father Desmet founded the first white settlement here, permanent settlement here in Montana, what is now Montana. But yeah, he has, uh, there's high schools named after him in Missouri, towns and here in Montana, obviously, a school district named after him here in Montana. You know, Wyoming has a Desmet. Uh, there's lakes, there's rivers, there's, there's actually, believe it or not, here in Montana, there are 18 towns named after Jesuits. That's pretty, pretty incredible. But like you said, they were some of the first invited into this area. Yeah, that's, that's the amazing thing, is that this is the only area in the world, to my knowledge, where the Catholic Church is here at the invitation of the indigenous people. 
them sending those four delegations to St. Louis to get the Jesuits, the black robes, to come out here, uh, we're here at their invitation. We haven't always respected that invitation, but we're here at that invitation. And I'm not familiar with anywhere else in the world. Usually the, the church came with settlers or came with the military, came with uh, colonists, so to speak. But that's not the case here. We were here at the invitation of the people. Well, I think that's, that's led to a unique relationship between the church in this area and the, the local uh, tribes, which it doesn't really exist in other places. This, it's almost like a, a harmony of sorts. Well, it is a harmony. It's also perhaps maybe a love-hate relationship sure. at times. Uh, <laughs> like I say, we, we, we respected the invitation to come. We didn't always respect the people when we got here. Sure. And so there's been a lot of back and forth over the last, you know, almost 200 years now that the, the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus, and the Catholic Church have been here in Montana. At the same time, there's a lot of, there's a lot of wonderful things that happen in that place. And that also sometimes gets, you know, kind of washed away with some of the negativity. Sure. Well, uh, history has always been a complicated place, full of good and bad from all sorts of people. And the church is the house of God, but it was built with the hands of man. So right. our mistakes sometimes translate over. That's true. We have to recognize that we are sinners. But, you know, it's been a good history, too. You know, from the Bitterroot up until the Flathead, the Ponderay, the Kalispell, the Kootenai people. We've also done a lot of really good things here. And uh, obviously the church here in Missoula, we started later. Our original invitation was for the native peoples, and that was the focus of the Jesuits. But as more and more settlers came in, particularly after the uh, gold strikes in uh, 1864, as more and more white settlers came into this area, uh, we also started to minister to them. We also have the Sisters of Providence, who are from Montreal. The Vatican wanted this area to be a new France, just like the Iroquois Indians, you know, that that part of upstate New York was New France. <laughs> and so the, you know, the first outside name, Desmet, was not French, but spoke French. But, you know, a lot of the early church leaders who came here were French, you know. You know, people came Bishop Blanchette. Uh, oh, there's all these French names in here. Even on the other side of the border there in, in uh, Idaho, you've got like Du Bois, Mm -hmm. uh, which I know is not the way that it's actually pronounced, but that's the way the locals pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of mispronunciations out here in the West Coast. Even though we're Montana, it's still West Coast for, for the Jesuits. We look at it, things a little bit bigger. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting history. So the Sisters of Providence are from Montreal. They came out in 1864 to St. Ignatius, uh, which was part of the, the beginning of the reservation up there, the Flathead Reservation, or the Federated Salish and Kootenai people. And you know, they taught the school up there. Uh, they started in 1864. The school was taught in French for the first 10 years. <laughs> it wasn't until they figured out that, okay, this is going to be a state, <laughs> um, that they switched to English. That's pretty cool. Well, and again, the names around here kind of reflect that, so it doesn't surprise me at all. New France. You should try telling some of the uh, local Montanans now <laughs> that this is supposed to be New France. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah. of course, one of the, one of the older settlements, older white settlements here, or non-native settlements, would be Frenchtown. Oh, yeah. You know, and it was Frenchtown and Bonner, which were really the two big white areas here. Missoula wasn't really that big of a deal until the railroad kind of came through in, what was that, 1864? No, 1884. 1884. 1884. So it, that's really when, when Missoula kind of exploded as a, a, a base. Right, in Fort Missoula in 1877. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in terms of St. Francis Xavier then, like our, our particular little slice of heaven where we're at, when was our church built? 
Well, the first the first few years when the Sisters of Providence came down from St. Ignatius, everything was located over at their chapel, which is now St. Patrick's Hospital. Everything was located there. So it was 1882, 1883, where they decided to build their own church here. Um, this is called what they called the Catholic Block. Catholic block. Father Palladino uh, purchased uh, three blocks of land, and this land was kind of abandoned at that time. It was it wasn't great land. So there's the financial district to the to the left of us over where the courthouse is and things like that. But this land was kind of just treeless and scrubless and so it was easy to purchase and the sisters built the hospital here and we went to church over at the hospital or over at the sisters convent. And then I think it was 1882, I think they started a wood structure church here on this property. And then in 1891, they built the current St. Francis Xavier. It's one of the oldest structures in the city. Uh, from my from my understanding, it is one of the oldest uh, brick structures for sure. Right. Yeah. At the time it was built, most things would have been still wood. The, the courthouse is a little bit after it. Hmm. That's fascinating. So, in in terms of like the participation here, like St. Francis and its influence on the surrounding area after its establishment, like what are we kind of looking at there? Because of course, like you said, our our the Sisters of Providence, which you know the Providence Network for the hospitals. The, hospitals. Yeah. Thank you. So they they were obviously doing their works in this area. Was St. Francis linked with that, in, or was there other activity that was as well? Yeah, we were linked with them insofar as we're the ones who hosted them. Sure. I mean, when they first came out in 1864 to St. Ignatius, up on the Flathead Reservation, and then they came down here. I think one of the sisters broke her arm, and uh, they decided they needed a, a, a medical facility here for, for people. Is that... Right. Mother Karen? Mary Karen, yeah. She, so... That's how they started the hospital. So the Jesuits have always been affiliated and associated with uh, the Sisters of Providence from day one. And most of the parishes here were founded by the Jesuits. I mean, the, the Jesuits were the ones who were here until more and more settlers poured in. So St. Anthony's and such were all uh, Jesuit as well? St. Anthony's wasn't. St. Anthony's was uh, 1921. Okay. So they're just, they're coming up on their, they just passed their 100 year anniversary. Hmm. Uh, the first church was out in Hellgate Canyon, um, and it was St. Michael's. And it actually moved three times. It was dismantled and moved, and now it's out Fort Missoula in the historical area at Fort Missoula. So it's still, still there. Matter of fact, on Easter, the uh, tabernacle we use for the repose when we empty the tabernacle um, on Holy Thursday, the tabernacle that we use to put the host in is actually the same tabernacle from St. Michael's Church. No joke. And we, we borrow it from the museum out at uh, Fort Missoula every year. Oh, they, that's they, cool. They let us borrow it. A little tidbit. That, see, I, I love doing this, this sort of thing. You get to learn so many cool things talking with knowledgeable people. Absolutely fantastic. This this church itself is so iconic, too. Like Just the way that it looks. Of, of the churches here, I think in terms of like traditional You've got, you know, St. Francis Xavier. For those of you who haven't seen it, there's Romanesque windows, those nice, like, smooth, rounded windows. Uh, of course, you've got the, the steeple that rises up, gorgeous stained glass, gorgeous frescoes, and, and just as sort of reminiscent of, like, I don't know, like, if you think Catholicism in your mind, that's, that's what kind of comes to mind for mine. But that doesn't come out of nothing. Like, it wasn't just a, you know, a kindergartner who went and started, you know, painting on the walls. Like, there was a serious history to the, to the art that we see in our... A gorgeous church. Right, and then Patricia would be able to speak a lot more about that than me. I mean, I, I know a lot about St. Ignatius of Mission because I was up there for years. 
But down here, you know, Brother Corleano painted the murals. Um, he was an untrained artist, but he probably had access to illustrated Bibles or illustrated pictures and stuff. Uh, there's, there's some clear copying that he did. Right. Um, yeah, I, w I would disagree that he didn't have any training. I, I would tend to think that the Jesuits invited him to come out here, you know, what is it, close to 10 years after the church was already built, because he had skills. You know, I know it's always dismissed that he was a cook when he did the Stations of the Cross, but... We all got a pair of bills. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he, was the, he was a brother, and so he was the cook to the missions. Okay. And so he lived uh, at San Ignatius, then lived down here, lived at Gonzaga University for many years, Painted probably about 25, 30 churches throughout the Pacific Northwest. There's only three left, St. Francis here, uh, St. Francis Xavier, um, St. Ignatius Mission. And then St. Lawrence, which is in Walkerville, Waterville, up above Butte, hmm. is a decommissioned church. He also painted that, and that's now owned by hmm. the city over there. And then there's some assorted maybe murals here and there around that he painted. Uh, Immaculate Conception in Seattle, there's two murals that we think he painted, but we have no documentation or anything. Just out of curiosity, what happened to the other churches that he that he painted for? Most of them were just wood structures, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, St. Joseph's in Yakima burned uh, back in the 1990s. So most of the, most of them were just, you know, he painted between was 1895 and 1917 when he died, and so most of them were just older wood structures that have been torn down and dismantled or burned. Ah, tragedy, just a tragedy. I love those those murals and those frescoes. I. Even now, after having attended church here for a long time, I still find myself just gazing up and getting lost sometimes. It's really well, quite stunning work. As someone who gives a lot of homilies here, I see a lot of people gazing up and getting lost. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for different reasons. <laughs> uh, well, they did find that interesting um, in preparing for today is, um, you know, thinking about the artists that have inspired Carignano. And it might be a fun thing to do at a later date, but, um, for example, if you look at the Stations of the Cross and you look at the Descent from the Cross, that's actually a really close uh, interpretation from Rubens. And the Ascension on the ceiling is the figure of Christ is taken from Raphael's Transfiguration. Hmm. So things like that is, is just kind of fun to see. Right, so, so we know he had yeah. exposure. Right, either through prayer cards or Bibles or art history books, mm -hmm. because obviously the Jesuits had extensive libraries. And um, as well as in the parish office over the years, there's large reproductions predominantly of Raphael's works, and it's fascinating to look at like the cherubs' faces because you figure those are probably inspiration too. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we have no diaries or specific documentation that says this is where it came from. <laughs> but you can guesstimate, you know, and so that's kind of fun. Right. We have that uh, the one painting upstairs. It's rolled up because it's we're trying to protect it. It's heavily damaged, and it's actually from Saint Ignatius <laughs> Mission. But what is it about uh, six feet, seven feet by twelve feet? And it's almost uh, Dali-esque. Oh, wow. Uh, with Christ hanging on the cross, and it almost looks like Salvador Dali. It's like a surrealist um, sort yeah. of uh, take but on it, it? But it was painted years before that. Right. I think it's a little bit of evocative of more of the Spanish tradition, you know, a dark ground and a light color flesh. Hmm. Yeah, so 
pops. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. There's been restorations and everything since, because the colors are very vivid and everything's still very sharp, or is that just the way that it was painted? Originally painted sharp and clear. clear. In the Middle Ages, the whole concept was bright, clear, true colors that more evoked the divine hmm. as opposed to muddied. Yeah. And so I forget the exact years we'd have to um, speak, you know, more to the folks that did the restoration work about the detail of the cleaning and repainting. Yeah, so they they have been cleaned. What was the last time we cleaned here at St. Francis? It was 86, 87, something like that? Yeah. Like that was the last time the, the high nave was cleaned. Now the lower part, the transepts that are there, um, those weren't cleaned in the 80s. And so you can tell they're a lot darker. Sure. Right. You know, eventually we'll have to do a, you know, I'm not in a position to announce any type of capital campaign. <laughs> eventually we will have to uh, do those. As you know, we just restored Greg Marster of Custom Plasters uh, out of Boise, Idaho, just restored St. Ignatius Mission. Hmm. And it was a four-year project and actually took off the paint and the pigmentation from earlier restorations and went back to everything as possible as just was the way it was with uh, Brother Cordiano. And uh, eventually we'll figure out a way to do that here. It'll just take a while. We've, we've touched up a couple of them. They've been, they've been fixed, so they're not going to fall apart. But you can see the cracks in them. And, of course, it's water-soluble, and so you get right. dirt and the smoke and humidity and all the kinds of stuff. And then, of course, we're in Montana. And so, you know, a 130-year-old building, and it heats and it contracts and freezes, and that, that does a lot on lath and plaster. We range from about 100 degrees in the summer to sometimes negative 70 in the winter. That's, uh, yeah, <laughs> a little bit of flex on that. Oh, But what about the, the stained glass? That's, you know, like my mom does stained glass, and so it was one of the most striking things to me when I first entered the, the church was just that the amazing stained glass that has the, it's like almost perfectly aligned to just bring this glow to the, the altar area. Who did those windows? Unfortunately, I have not come across that in any of our documentation. Hmm. Um, for example, like the cathedral in Helena, you can find more about it. But um, here, I haven't. Have you, Father Hightower? I have not. And uh, what is what is interesting about St. Francis Xavier with the stained glass is usually when you have such vivid murals that tell the story of the Bible and Hebrew Scripture and Christian Scripture and all these things, you have kind of rather plain stained glass. But this church has both. Right. It has these vivid, vivid, and we call, we call them murals. They're actually dry frescoes. Mm -hmm. It's a different painting style. But we have those, and then we also have just these beautiful stations across that are framed that he also painted. And then we have these beautiful stained glass windows that really do play on the light of, uh, right. in Missoula here, the way light comes in both in the winter and in the summer. Mm -hmm. They intentionally... Um, used more amber color glass so that the light would be more filtered and wouldn't fade mm. the uh, fresco. That's a um, seco fresco, which means that it's dry, so that it's painted on dry instead of um, the, the truer fresco where the plaster itself is wet. Mm. So that when the color is applied after it dries, it, it becomes more intense. I think the best way to think about it is, you know, if you use uh, greenware, like in a pottery shop, and you paint your own pottery, you're not always 100% sure what the color is going to look like until you fire it. Mm -hmm. Well, the artists obviously back in the day imagined what the colors would turn out, but 
just that they become richer as the color dries. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I'm. I like art, but I am a luddite when it comes to it. So everything you guys have just been saying right now is, and I'm, I'm sure, like I've I've got friends who are who are artists who are probably listening right now, going, "I told you that five years ago." <laughs> but it's so much cooler when you have context. It is well, and we're lucky because you know. Trisha herself is an artist, and we have a couple of her paintings on display over in the church, which really benefits us. And then doing the work up at St. Ignatius, you know, with the sister parish to St. Francis, uh, doing the work up there and understanding what Greg Marster has brought in from Custom Plaster and how he describes it and, you know, just the way they, just the way everything is done. Um, one of the things that's really interesting next door, and unfortunately you don't really get to see this unless you're up on scaffolding or... You can go up into the choir loft and see it a little bit, but there's an optical illusion that takes place because the walls are also rounded, mm -hmm. and so they're not painted in proportion. So, But when we're standing down on the ground level and sitting in the pews and daydreaming during my homily, <laughs> you can see it. Everything looks proportional, and it's very sharp, where when you're up close to it, it's not proportional, and it's actually kind of fuzzy. Hmm. So it's the way your eyes work in bringing out. And, so, and that's just a, a total skill. To being able to, to do that. We can tell where Brother Cordiano had some help or where people have repaired things that they did not know that technique mm. because the colors and this and that. You can, Even just looking at the same thing, you can see. Yeah. yeah, the perspective. You can see some of like the borders of some of the, the dry frescoes, the murals. The borders are actually different colored here and there because they didn't understand that perspective and that way that optical uh, illusion works. Um, so it's... it's it, you, I mean, being in a being a pastor of a church like this and being a pastor, um, you just learn a lot of things that the the high school Craig Hightower and the college Craig Hightower would have not known any of this. <laughs> well, when you work uh, basically inside of a historical site, I imagine that this stuff tends to come up, which is outstanding. Yeah, and there's 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 a lot of little things that, um, like we have a membrane on our front walk in the front. Um, and that's the reason why is because the concrete is poor. So we have sandstone and granite, and then they, the concrete they used just wasn't high-quality concrete. Hmm. Matter of fact, the, uh, they didn't use rebar. They used actually railroad rails. And so when you walk in through the handicap entrance down into the, uh, the Reedy Hall, you can actually see the, the, the rails hmm. there, you know, um, so it's just, it's a, an, an interesting thing saying, oh, that's the construction they did, okay. Yeah. I thought that was just a, a like a cool technique they had used for putting it together and giving it texture. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Oh, well, I know we kind of got off topic on the art, but that, it was just absolutely fascinating. Just And again, if you ever have a chance to stop by, it's right next to St. Pat's Hospital here in Missoula, Montana. We, it's just absolutely gorgeous on the inside. The liturgy is fantastic, too, but... Stopping by and taking a look if you're in Missoula is an absolute must. But kind of going back to the history element of this, uh, was there anything else you guys wanted to touch on before we uh, wrapped up for today? Well, no, I think, uh, you know, like I say, the, we're here at the invitation of the Salish people and their Nez Perce allies. It's been a humbling experience for these 140 years, uh, 180 years, excuse me. And then here in Missoula, we really responded to when uh, the railroad came through and Missoula started growing. Uh, responding more to the uh, the colonists, the, the white settlers coming in. Um, but it's been a good relationship. But there's very clear that St. Francis Xavier Parish is an anchor in here in the middle of Missoula. There's a, 
we're a destination parish. Yeah. So we have traditional boundaries, but the reality is, is that people come to us because of the beauty of the artwork, um, the beauty of the music. We, we just, we're so blessed to have a talented music crew. Um, you're a part of that. Obviously, you canter here and there. We have some Jesuits who are good preachers. <laughs> we have uh, myself, who you've already admitted to daydreaming and staring at the ceiling. Um, but we're, we're just very, we're very fortunate. We're very fortunate to have a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life, uh, both Salish and urban Indian and white and immigrant, that find St. Francis a home, and that's a, that's a great thing. And so bring us, bring us the black robes. Uh, we came out, and we still welcome more people. I love it. Patricia, did you have anything else? Oh, just that there's so much more that could be expressed about, you know, the inside of the church. And I like to compare um, some of the signs and the symbols in there that back in the day the folks would have recognized very much the same. Um, People now with their smartphones look at emojis and they recognize what those mean. In other words, like what side of the church certain images were placed on, whether it was east or west, you know, the east with the rising of the sun, you know, or different symbols or different colors um, were significant. And right now in today's society, I think a lot of that is lost on people. I mean, we're going back and, and discussing more about like our traditions as a church and some of our symbolism. I absolutely want to come back and touch on this again because, like you said, if you know where to look and how to look, it's it's all over the place. Right. But for those who are uninitiated or, or perhaps that just wasn't part of their Catholic initiation, it can be a bit or of a mystery. study of art history or any of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, wonderful. Well, and you're right because that's the the whole idea of the murals is to teach the faith to people that don't read. Mm-hmm. The idea of the stained glass windows teach the stories that for people that will read. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the iconography and the symbols do the same. Okay. I, I was having a conversation with the parish staff member, who I will not mention on this, and I was talking about the pelican that is on the main, main altar. And they had no idea that the pelican was a symbol of Christ because the pelican feeds its young by poking its chest and feeding them its blood. And so the blood of Christ in the Eucharist is, you know, so there's pelicans. If you go to the Holy Land, there's pelicans everywhere and altars and things like that. And hmm. this person had no idea. And it's like, okay, well, yeah. So okay. the, part of it is some, we need to continue the education and say, no, this, this has been here since 1891. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's, let's teach the faith. But the education continues because I only just today found out about pelicans in Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, thank you both for coming on. This was outstanding. Thank you. Thanks for having us again. Nicholas. Thank you for being with us today as we walk as pilgrims this road together. If you feel called to learn more, please consider checking out St. Francis Xavier or your local Catholic church. All are welcome into our community as God loves us all equally. If you are interested in supporting the Vox SFX podcast, please visit sfxmissoula.org backslash donate. Until next time. Go forth in peace and be the light of Christ in someone's day.